1: Shahazi.
2: And the Tom Sumner Program.
4: This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. And welcome back, everybody, to Part 2 of Armchair Politics on this week's uh, edition of Armchair Politics, rather, on the, the Tom Sumner program. And joining me for today's edition, our panel of political pundits includes on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Always good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican, Henry Hatter. Henry, welcome back to you as well. Henry? Mm. We might have lost Henry. Oh, what? Well. oh Well, maybe he'll disconnect and and call back in, but I also want to make sure and acknowledge who's participating with us uh, today, uh, political operative Bobby Clayton Walton. Bobby, welcome back to you as well. Hi. Sorry I drove Henry away. (laughs) Yeah. Usually that's uh, that's, uh, Woodrow Stanley's job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm gonna to have to
1: contact Woodrow
4: and tell him I'm sharing this man's life. Well, Michigan's minimum wage will rise by twenty two cents. Oh, that might be Henry. Maybe oh. maybe it was
3: Henry.
4: Yep, that's Henry. Stand by for just a second, folks. I'm gonna transfer him right over. Oh. Hey there you are, Henry.
5: Uh I I was wondering whether you could hear me or not because I Everybody it right in, and I, I thought, well, I'm shut off right now. Well, uh, th- thanks <laughs> for, I'm thanks back for re- I'm reconnecting. I'm back with you.
4: Thanks for reconnecting. Oh, uh, thank you. Michigan's minimum wage will rise by 22 cents to $9.87 an hour on January 1st. State law requires annual increases in the wage until it reaches $12.05 in a decade. The $0.22 raise was supposed to occur in 2021, but was automatically delayed because of high unemployment early in the coronavirus pandemic. The state announced this past week that the minimum wage for 16- and 17-year-olds will increase by $0.19 to $8.39 an hour. Employees who make tips will earn a base wage of $3.75 per hour, uh, which is, I guess, $0.08 more. And uh, employers must pay any shortfall if the gratuities plus the minimum wage do not equal or exceed the standard minimum wage. Um, are these minimums adequate to reverse the so-called great resignation?
3: I I, I kind of chuckled when I saw a 22%, 22 cent raise. I mean, these days, uh, this, those kind of things almost seem irrelevant when you see signs out in front of every... McDonald's and Taco Bell and every other place offering you know, 12 and $15 an hour. I, uh, I, 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 wonder, I really wonder what effect that really has. And I, I
5: question how much we consider the gap going between the rich and the poor. That must have something to do with attitudes toward taking jobs that uh, won't sustain a lifestyle. And uh, somehow we have to go through that and have a discussion to find out why this is so, because we don't know. And no, 22 cents will never sustain the lifestyle of a 17-year-old. True. Well,
1: they need to to be able to save money for school, if nothing else. I, I question also the rate of inflation and the cost of living and all of the other things that generally go into wage considerations. Um, Certainly, that's not a living wage for an adult to try to raise a family or themselves.
5: But, But, you know, entangled with this is the growing disparity between the rich and the poor. And we don't talk too much about that.
4: But that kind of Growth. Well, I, th- and in all fairness, I think, it gets, I think it does get t- Henry. In all fairness, I think it does uh, get. I think it does get. Henry. In all fairness, I think that that disparity does get talked about a lot, but not very much gets done about it.
5: Uh, yeah. Maybe that's
3: it. And it's certainly increased in recent decades. If you compare the the average wages of the CEO to the average worker 30, 40 years ago to where it is now, it has been. It's it's grown dramatically wider over the years. Um, yeah. And
1: it's, it's government policy that, that allows that to happen and sets it up so that um, people's disrespect for government is growing because they see that it's not uh, going to make their lives any better or it has no intention of making their lives any better.
4: Well, and we just had, you know, this this whole idea of COVID-19 and the quarantine and a year and a half, you know, that, that some people, you know, businesses closed or suspended operations for some period of time. And a lot of people spent time at home deciding whether they were really getting out of their employment what they wanted and needed. You know, was it really rewarding? And so now, as we try to, to get back to some sort of normal, we have this great resignation where people are saying, no, they don't pay me enough, and I'm not happy in my work. I, you know, I want to do something else. Now, I don't know what they're doing instead, but there seems to be an awful lot of people, what, 8 million jobs that mm-hmm. didn't get, you know, uh, where people didn't reenter their their workforce.
1: Yeah, they may have retired some people may have decided to uh, start their own business at home I I suspect some people who are particularly women raising children have found that it costs them money to make money um, and staying at home and taking care of their children they wind up saving more money than they were making so I suspect that some of
3: that it's just a mixture of things you know, this pandemic may have some very long-lasting effects on how we, how we deal with the workforce and, and the whole economy in ways we can't quite imagine yet. That you know, Even when the pandemic is gone, it may change our patterns of how we work at home, things of that nature that have been, been around for a very, very long time.
5: But there's a downside, according to some critics, to people who retire early and need the job because they don't, simply don't want to work
0: anymore.
5: Yeah. They can make more money at home and stuff like that. That downside is that many people will become desperate for work, and as the immigrants come in and migrants move around in the nation, those jobs that they have will no longer be available to them. So there is uh, an assumption that those people will face dire uh, Poverty in the future, the loss of money, the loss of position, the loss of presence in the future. There's a there's a number of articles that's written about that.
1: Do we know what what uh, part of the work sector are the jobs that are most missing? I think it's probably the service sector.
4: Well, I and I think yeah. even more specifically than that, Bobby, restaurants.
3: Oh yeah. yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, I know, as as a, as a, a personal comment, my very frequent, my wife and I will go out for in the afternoon for a a Coke at McDonald's, and periodically we'll go to one and say, Oh no, we're closed today. We haven't got enough workers that in the in, in the in the in the dining area, so they'll close the dining area when they just don't have the <laughs> workers, and that's happened more than a few times in, the, in recent months.
5: Mm-hmm. But there are people waiting at our borders, wanting to take those jobs because anything is better than what they face. According to what I'm yep. reading, this is not doctrine guys. but according to what I'm hearing and what i do you think I believe it? Yes, I do, because I'd hate to be in the situation of people on either side of
4: that issue. Well, moving on, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson and members of her staff met virtually Tuesday with the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, according to ben- Benson spokesperson Tracy Wimmer to CNN. Wimmer did not divulge much from what was discussed in the meeting but said the topics included the 2020 presidential election and the events leading up to January 6th. In addition to Benson, the committee uh, has also interviewed Chris Thomas, a former longtime Michigan Director of Elections, who was brought in during the 2020 election to oversee absentee ballot processing at the uh, TCF Center in Detroit. Thompson said he was interviewed about a month ago by the committee. He said he was asked about his experiences at the TCF Center, including the final day of counting when things got disruptive. He was also asked about whether he had interactions with Republican lawyers who were involved in Michigan, though he said he did not. To what degree was Michigan a staging area leading up to the January 6th Capitol riot?
3: Oh, I think a lot of people thought that though that uh, rally protest in front of the state capitol was kind of a rehearsal. I've forgotten the exact date of that right now, but uh, I've heard it's, uh, many people assert that that was almost a rehearsal for what happened on January sixth.
1: Well, yeah, I think there's a very heavy militia presence in Michigan. It always has been, or at least in my lifetime. And um, I have read things and seen things that were transmitted. By the various groups uh, on meeting and doing these sorts of things, so I think it was very important.
3: And like I say, you, have, you know, had the, you know, the, 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 the attempts inner, to to capture the governor and hold him, and put her on trial, and in some some fashion by some of those militia groups, could be, the the plot got really, very, very, very bizarre. But maybe not any more bizarre than trying to hang Vice President Pence. Uh, yeah. I'm very concerned about the Oath Keepers because those tend to be uh, your sworn officers
1: and retired or or active military. True.
4: Strange times. Well, let's... uh I think i get got time for one more before the break. President Joe Biden said on Monday that he wants his Build Back Better bill to pass the Senate as early as possible, but that he's dedicated to getting it approved regardless of how long it takes. When asked whether the bill will pass the Senate by Christmas as had originally been the Democratic goal, Biden said, as early as we can get it, I'm willing to get it done no matter how long it takes. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is still insisting that Biden's social safety net bill can pass his chamber by Christmas, even as doubts grow over whether such a timeline is achievable given the procedures of the Senate and the lingering differences among Democrats. Can the Democrats pull this off in the next three weeks? Mm. I
3: don't
1: know. If Pelosi was in charge of the Senate,
3: I would say probably... Yeah, the, the Senate's going to be a tough nut to crack. It really will be. Uh, well, you know what's it interesting about sounds, that bill. Go ahead, Henry.
5: It just sounds to me that I didn't I didn't see this as a Democrat thing when Joe Biden said, "I will take all of the time that's necessary to get it through." But um, I was thinking that way. Maybe he was thinking of converting some Republicans to his side, which is very wise. It, well, that's it can, a, work, yeah, that's the thing that he ought to be seeking.
3: That's a good because
5: point. Once, yeah, once, once he moves in that direction, he will have something that's stable and that will be seated and accepted among the American people. Well, but, but if, so if it, it goes by all the Democrats, uh,
1: yeah.
5: it's just, uh, going to be just a mess. Well, Henry,
1: um, do you see any senators that, that might be amenable
5: to that? I can think of maybe two of the women characters, well, perhaps. Well, I I wish there were, uh, but and I think there there can be. There are many uh, Republicans that agree with some degree of of uh, a working relationship with the Democrats. But hey, you know, we're uh, have the, to- it's the people back home that prevent that. Thank you.
4: We've got to pause there. Uh, Paul, hold that thought. We're going to take a short break and let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in, and then we'll be back with more armchair politics on today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. There's more straight ahead.
1: Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner.
6: Visit mi.gov slash AG complaints for your connection to consumer protection. Happy holidays! Mia, Ita, Kelly, Caitlin. Caitlin. Lauren,
2: and the Tom Sumner Program. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back,
4: everybody. We continue armchair politics on today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Bobby Clayton Walton. And, uh, Paul, just before we went to break, we were talking, uh, let's see, what was it we were talking about? The Build no? Back
3: Better bill, right. Exactly.
4: Exactly. Uh. Um, and uh, you were about to make a a point, and we had to go yeah. My only
3: thought was I I wondered i uh, when you look at the popularity of some of the individual components of that bill, they, they're fairly strong even among some Republicans. And I've often wondered whether or not that bill would have been easier to sell if you had broken it apart and and had individual bills on, you know, child care components and other things down the line. I know it makes things a little messier. But I, I really wonder whether or not you would have a uh, uh, an easier way defining what you're working for, because so many folks will hear the phrase "build back better" bill, and they really haven't got the clearest idea what it's all about. But if you had a bill on, you know, uh, infrastructure or child well, care, well, and, and they did, that nature, they it did the actually.
4: They did actually split it into two parts. That's true. Putting the bulk of the infrastructure, the infrastructure in the first one, and that one, one yeah. and that one went through already.
3: Right.
1: Yeah. You got to consider Mr. McConnell. He's not going to allow anything to get through um, without raising a fuss with his Republican constituents. Uh, if the Democrats are sponsoring it, <laughs> it's, it's become personality or political leverage or something.
4: Well, yeah. and that and that leads. Uh, sort of nicely into the next uh, segment which again I have to invoke uh, Paul's disclaimer about and whatever happens in the next 24 hours because this uh, this story too has changed in the last 24 hours. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was quietly moving to conduct or concoct a plan that would allow the nation's borrowing <laughs> limit to be raised and force Democrats to ultimately cast the decisive and politically toxic vote, but he'll first have to sell it to Republicans. To accomplish his plan, Republicans will first need to cooperate under the rules of the Senate, and it's unclear if the necessary 10 GOP senators will do just that. McConnell, who has in the past developed creative ways to avoid a debt default without having Republicans cast the key vote, has been quietly working for weeks with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer ahead of the uh, December 15th deadline set by the Treasury Department his positioning amounts to a sharp shift from the last debt ceiling standoff earlier this fall when he initially refused to provide any GOP votes uh, before cutting a deal to raise the debt ceiling for two months and later pointedly told President Joe Biden there would be There wouldn't be GOP cooperation again, now ahead of yet another deadline to avoid the nation's first ever default and the calamitous effects that would go with it. McConnell is eager to avoid a fiscal crisis that could be blamed on his party, especially as GOP fortunes are on the rise in next year's midterm elections with all of this wrangling back and forth and and Mitch McConnell has come through with what he needs to to you know to to get the debt ceiling raised and and have democrats take the blame but my question is and, and it's I think it's worthy of a lot more discussion than it ever gets, will there ever be an effort to use the debt ceiling as it was intended? A cap on spending. <laughs> We've been it.
5: talking about that for a lot of years. I know. Yeah, and we haven't done anything yet, so you gotta make your move, Tom. What do we do? <laughs> Well, as long as we are funding
1: for wars, let's go back to how the debt ceiling really got exceeded. We spend so much money. I was telling my son, for I'm as old as the hills, I remember the beginning of World War II. I remember the end of World War II. I remember the beginning of Korean injury. I remember the end. I remember Vietnam. I remember all of that, all in my lifetime. Every single one of those has put us behind the rock and the hard place as far as debt goes. So until we stop funding, going to war, and armaments and all of the things that we're funding, we're never going to get rid of, of debt.
5: You know, I, uh, Bobby, I agree with you. I'm sorry to say that, but I agree with you. Uh, funding wars that end up costing us billions of dollars and having to rebuild other countries and stuff like that, that doesn't make sense. We've got to find a better way of... of uh, Maybe flexing our muscles than going to war.
1: But well, we don't yeah, talk I mean,
5: about that. We talk about doing something about food stamps, or doing something
1: about welfare, or doing something about affordable housing. We don't talk about the fact that we have gone into massive debt over wars and over armaments and things that deteriorate in the desert because we don't use them.
3: Yeah, I mean the war in Afghanistan what was it, two trillion dollars is a commonly tossed around number for that one, and we're approaching a debt that we haven't seen since World War II. I mean we. The the debt is about to exceed the the GDP for the nation. We haven't. I said we we did that shortly after World War II, but we're we're getting back to that same level again, and that is I think it's
5: about essence. it's about uh, thirty trillion, it?
3: Not... I don't know. It's way too much. No, I think yeah, it was it's little, about little, I think I'm going to say twenty-seven and twenty-six, but I uh, but okay. it's, it's probably in the ballpark. But uh, yeah. but again, it's it's getting very close. In fact, I think it's now. Ex- equaling the, the GDP for the country. And we did, we did that, like I say, in the 40s with World War II, obviously for the crisis of that time. But we're now getting to the same level. And, and, we, and it's possible to work your way out. We did that after World War II. Gradually it came down as you got in the 50s and 60s and, and 70s. It, it became a smaller fraction of the GDP. But uh, the hope is that this spending we do, we're doing now will do the same thing. But it's of, it's of a different nature in many ways.
5: But we've got to have, we got to allow our treasury to grow a little bit. We're, we're pulling too much money out of the treasury. And a country that does not have a powerful treasury will not last long. All we have to do is take a look at South America and take a look at some of the um, Asian countries that rise and fall because they don't have much, or the African countries. Uh, No, we're
1: not losing our money, we're losing our democracy.
4: Well, both. Okay. Well, the Biden administration will not send an official U.S. delegation to the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing as a statement against China's ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity in in Xinjiang, according to White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. U.S. athletes will still be allowed to compete in the Olympics, but the administration will not be sending government officials to the Games. The same policy applies for the Paralympic Games, which are also taking place in Beijing. The White House is looking to send a clear message that the uh, human rights abuses in China mean there cannot be business as usual, Saki told reporters at a White House briefing. How does this compare to Jimmy Carter's boycott of the 1980 Olympics in Moscow?
3: Mm, that was the first thing I thought of. Yeah, but I think in, in 80, the, the the athletes were denied the right to go as well, weren't they, I believe? Yeah, we didn't participate yeah. at all. Yeah. So this uh, this will be a, sort of a diplomatic... The athletes will be there. By the way, I see that Australia, I believe, is, is, is doing the same thing. But how so much Australia of a
4: statement does it really make if it's just, we're not going to send a bunch of suits from Washington?
1: Yeah, that's but true. It's just, uh, just FaceTime. One of the things that occurred to me was when I read or heard about with Biden's conversation with Putin over what's happening with the Ukraine and, and the economic sanctions Being proposed that would include the NATO uh, nations uh, refusing to uh, deal with Russia, and then now we're we're bringing our suits home from China. I mean, it's it's not war, but it's um, one way of exercising some American power, I guess.
3: Yeah,
4: yeah, but will they be missed as much as the athletes were in Moscow?
3: Probably not. (laughs) No, I don't think. As you say, a few, a few fewer suits in the stands may not be noticed all that much, but, you know, it's a kind of a diplomatic slap in the face, and that's about all there is to it. Well, for, for the people in Asia, uh, face is a big,
1: big thing. And, yeah, that is uh, true. It is, it is a big thing, much more than it would be if it was in Sweden or Australia. But, um, and so it can be a slap in the face, which might be taken much more personally than in some other countries.
5: But also, Bobby, it runs counter to our position of doing things to avoid conflict, like wars. Uh, Maybe we don't have to be so tough. Maybe we can be strong and powerful. What's cool to us, and we know we have the best military in the world, we have the greatest technology, we have all of that stuff. We don't have to go out and flex muscles to do that, to do it.
3: But it's kind, of, it's kind of a minor way of saying we don't buy into the, the repression that's going on in China. I mean, it's, we're not just going to turn a, turn a blind eye to yeah. all of that. So it's, it's, it's a minor way of registering a protest, I guess. Well, it's, it's saying I'm not supporting what you're doing.
1: Yeah. You know, as, co- as opposed to coming to war or coming to, to blows, we just don't support what you're doing.
3: Right.
5: I agree with that.
1: In fact, it's too bad that uh, we can't bring uh, economic pressure to the various states under Mitch McConnell's leadership um, to, to show them how they benefit from Build Back Better as opposed to losing under Bill Back better, and maybe they would see the economic impact, like Putin is supposed to be seeing the economic impact.
3: Yeah.
4: Well, I did see a little piece. I I, I don't really have any details on it, but uh, it sounds like they're they're talking in the White House about pulling out uh, uh, some of the diplomats over um, an invasion of Ukraine by the Russians.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I heard also that Putin is, and of course you hear a lot of things, Putin is really looking forward to being able to bring Donald Trump back to the White House because he has much more influence with him.
5: Well, I don't think that they have that much authority in the United States. I don't think they have that much influence. They certainly have a will
3: of their own. They were involved in the American people, people have a will of their
5: own and it's stubborn, yeah. stable, and it's unpredictable.
4: Well, let's move on. Well, during during Wednesday's historic oral arguments on abortion rights, Chief Justice John Roberts pulled back the curtain on internal Supreme Court negotiations and referred to the papers of the late Justice Harry Blackman, the author of Roe v. Wade. Roberts usually scorns any courtroom uh, references to materials beyond the briefs and record of a case, let alone to private debate among justices, but he wanted support for his position that a key part of the 1973 landmark decision that gave women a right to abortion at the early stages of pregnancy could be scrapped without disturbing Roe's central holding. Justices loathe public scrutiny of their behind the scenes negotiations on cases, and some disapprove of colleagues arranging for their uh, once private papers to be turned over to public libraries when they die. Roberts called the Blackman files um, opened in 2004 at the Library of Congress an unfortunate source. The court has delayed release of Justice John. Paul Stevens papers in conflict with a bequest he made to the Library of Congress before his 2019 death. So it was jarring Wednesday when Roberts referred to the Blackman uh, papers as he sought to bolster his assertion that a crucial section of Roe v. Wade tied to fetal viability could be discarded without undercutting Roe. Is the rationale with regard to the 1973 Roe v. Wade SCOTUS ruling fair game in light of new understandings about fetal viability?
1: No, not at all, because fetal viability, the way we we exercise it today, depends upon a lot of medical intervention. If you look at fetal viability being the natural uh, occurrence of a, a fetus being able to survive on its own, uh, outside a woman's body, then it's a different definition. I think what he's doing, which is really the crux of the matter, is he's taking away a woman's constitutionally protected civil right and dumping it back to majority rule state law, which is wrong, and it shouldn't be
3: done that way, but it's what he's going to do. And as I recall, the Roe Wade case—I mean, it, as Supreme Court cases go, that was one of the more readable ones because it did cut, did review an awful lot of history of abortion over over the centuries, really. But as I recall, it, they used the phrase uh, "the majority of fetuses survive" for to define viability. So, I mean, there may be some cases where one out of a hundred or one out of a thousand survives at a very early stage with medical intervention, but I really wonder whether the the majority. So, so survival rate has changed all that much over time. And again, I don't know the, the medical answer to that, but uh, it's not just whether a, a fetus could theoretically survive, it's whether the majority of them could, and that was the phrase they used in the Roe case, and that may still be the same or very similar.
1: Well, I would think it should be the same, but I don't. I don't put any faith in people using their religious beliefs to make law.
3: Yeah, yeah. Having said that, I think I mean it certainly looks like Ro's going to be the whole abortion issue is going to be a hot button issue this year. That decision will be, come down probably in June and so forth, and it's going to be a uh, from all appearances right now at least looks like it's going to be very much a hot button issue. Yeah, I think so.
4: Well, on an a unrelated issue, um, one that came from Paul's list that. I just I didn't come across, um, and and we have a few minutes before the next break. And, and the X Files, um, Paul had on his list about uh, Genesee County considering the purchase of uh, U of M, uh, a U of M building downtown for eight and a half million dollars.
3: What yeah, is the story I think some with downtown that, downtown realtors raised some some questions about the price, cause since I think the U of M got that. For a dollar if I'm not mistaken some years ago I, I don't know any more financial details beyond that I don't think
4: but to but for what purpose to what end would the county benefit from owning the U of M building downtown
3: well it is a story I saw they they claimed that they needed extra office space and that somehow this building was going to be more efficient uh, less worry about uh utility bills and asbestos and things of that nature I i don't know which offices they were planning on moving down there anyhow but, well i uh, think that i think they were they have talked for a few years now about um...
1: building a whole new administration building because the building that they're in right there uh... is deteriorating and right. asbestos may be an issue and i think that part of what they're planning on doing is moving like the department of health from where it currently is in the mccree building moving the administrative offices for the county that, and all of the offices that are currently in the administration building, and um, maybe maybe G-Card. I'm not real sure about that. But there are some... Uh, it seems this building would have the space that would accommodate all of those, which would cut back on the costs because you're now talking about one building as opposed to several. Yeah. how
4: uh, How does this compare... To what Jamie Curtis was talking about a few years ago with a, an some sort of new uh, civic complex that would house Genesee yeah. County and the city. Yeah, I remember
3: all that discussion. Well, that. he
1: wanted to build a whole new building, building, and and consolidate all the courts in one building and everything like that. It was, it was really a uh, a Jamie Curtis
5: memorial. <laughs> well, also it did have some merit. Because the buildings that exist between the county and the city are antiquated. They're not conducive to uh, tremendous technology. And to go back and retrofit technology in those buildings would be incredibly expensive. And they could, the idea was, they could have a single building that would take responsibility for all of the governmental functions in the city of Flint. Yeah.
1: Well That's my understanding the technology
5: is
1: it would make one great target for somebody that wanted yeah. to fly a plane into it. My um, yeah. my uh, understanding is the county has already voted to uh, to do this. I I right. Yeah. Yeah I think it's already yeah. been it's a done
5: yeah. deal. Yeah, I, I No
1: think I,
4: I to. think it is gonna happen. It's just yeah. um, it, it's it's just a little unclear to me. Of course, I've got to I've got to look it up and and read up on it a little bit. But um, I, I'm just not clear how that puts the county um, in a better position, or if it spreads things out more than they are now. Well, it but does make sense
5: that technology is what drives our processes in government, and if the buildings are antiquated and don't meet the needs and. Uh, difficult to retrofit, it just makes sense. And as uh, Bobby has said, the buildings are decaying and they are in need of upkeep. If we would move into larger buildings, that would be uh, much more accommodating to technology and uh, easy reach of all governmental systems, segments of the system. It would make sense.
1: Yeah, I think they're talking about courts and county, but I don't think they're including city. The At least
5: court, I have yeah. the courts were included in dollars.
3: Oh, okay. Did anybody see this story a while back? This is just in terms of very alternate plans, some suggestion that somebody had of using Genesee Valley, with all the vacant stores that are now there, using <clears throat> Genesee Valley as the, as the, the, county, the county building. Uh, but I mean, you're I, not I did, in a... It didn't go but anywhere. That's not just...
5: Central City.
3: No, what's not? And again, it would do nothing for the yeah. downtown. That's that's correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you it got that.
5: that. You the got the that. idea
3: never. It didn't yeah. go anywhere. But I recall hearing somebody throw that idea out a few years ago, and it seemed yes. like a an odd idea. But, uh,
4: yeah, I don't think the powers that be. Ice. I don't think the powers that be will ever let uh, the county or the city move out of downtown.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're exactly right. Uh, uh, and, and the other part of the story I saw there, too, was there were some questions raised about the price, whether that was a, did the... Did the county overpay for that building? And that I don't really know either. Uh, is there a fair price for that kind of building in downtown Flint these days? Uh,
5: but it's the marketplace that set, sets the price. We can't go out on our own and determine what the price ought to be, but it's the marketplace.
4: Hey, I...
1: The uh, only
5: thing that occurs to me was there was
1: a lot of upheaval during Jamie Curtis's tenure about uh, doing these kinds of deals behind closed doors and then suddenly the public is brought into it after they've already made the decision. I don't Mm -hmm. know whether that's true or not because I haven't really been involved with what the county has been doing lately except for a few instances. So maybe this was done in public, maybe it wasn't, I don't know.
4: Well, we've got a break coming up here in uh, just a moment or so, and I want to squeeze in a little bit because we got talking about uh, the Supreme Court wrangling over uh, some things that may have um, an impact on Roe v. Wade, and I'm going to have a, a very interesting discussion about that tomorrow with the chief legal analyst for Esquire Digital, Aaron Solomon, is going to uh, be on the show tomorrow and talk about the uh, the Dobbs. Versus Jackson women's health organization case on which all of this wrangling is based and uh, probably make some comments on uh, Let me just check my calendar for a minute Yeah, that's going to be during the 10 o'clock hour So if you have a real interest in uh, picking that apart and seeing what's going on Be sure and tune in to the show tomorrow at 10 in the meantime Stay tuned, because we're going to be back with the X-Files right after this.
1: (laughs) This is the Unknown Comic.
2: And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now.
7: Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse.
6: Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported.
4: The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and wherever
2: books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Rod Serling Rod Serling What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would
6: have been headed for the Twilight Zone Twilight Zone I go any Laura, I'll
0: be in the Twilight Zone All
3: right Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone
0: I'm in the Twilight Zone Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone I got a feeling something strange is about to happen In the Twilight Zone
1: Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Programme
4: Hey, welcome back to the final segment of today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner program, The Coveted X-Files, where we look at those weird and wacky stories that uh, are strange but true. Um, while high gas prices have pushed President Biden to tap into the U.S.'s strategic oil reserves, America's neighbor to the north is also dealing with a shortage of another so-called liquid gold. The Canadian group Quebec Maple Syrup Producers recently announced it was releasing about 50 million pounds of its strategic maple syrup reserves, about half of the total stockpile. Quebec produces nearly 70% of the world's maple syrup with the U.S. being its biggest client for the sweet stuff. However, this uh, this year producers weren't able to keep up with worldwide demand which jumped 21 percent according to Bloomberg. Maple syrup is made from the sap from maple trees which is traditionally harvested by installing a metal tap into the tree's trunk. Modern sap harvesting typically involves a system of plastic tubing and vacuums to collect the sap from multiple trees to a central location where it can be refined into syrup. This is a seasonal process though as maple sap can only be harvested in specific weather conditions so this year's short and warm spring resulted in an uncharacteristically low yield for producers. That's why the reserve is made to never miss maple syrup and we don't miss maple syrup said Helene Normandon the Quebec maple syrup producers communications director. Well it's hard to predict what's next year's uh, Crop might look like. Norman and said they were already planning for the future. Did you know that, that Canada had a strategic maple syrup reserve? <laughs> no, I did no. not. No.
3: <laughs> no, that's well, a valuable part of the economy. And I, I can't say I've noticed the price of maple syrup is going up or down or anything else, to be perfectly honest. I don't know.
4: <laughs> uh, it's probably coming in smaller
3: bottles. Well, maybe that's it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a staple in our
1: house. My husband is a Michigan and he, he will tolerate Canadian maple syrup, but he prefers Michigan. Oh.
4: Well, a man in Italy who wanted proof of vaccination but didn't want to get the shot attempted to trick medical workers by using a fake arm, <laughs> according oh, yeah, to a I local know. nurse. I saw that,
3: yeah.
4: Nurse Filippa yes. Bua in the city of Biela said she first noticed something was amiss pretty quickly. When I uncovered the arm, I felt skin that was cold and gummy and the color was too light, she told Italian, <laughs> uh, she told the Associated Press. She said that at... First, she thought he had an actual prosthetic arm and he had simply accidentally offered her the wrong one. But that was not the case. The man was wearing a covering on his torso with two rubber foam arms attached. (laughs) (laughs) The man ultimately admitted that his goal had been to obtain a COVID-19 vaccine certificate without receiving the shot, she said what would you do for a covid uh, vaccine certificate
3: <laughs> it's incredible what people are doing to, to avoid this d shot uh it's, it's
4: yeah i, I just to shake your consequences
3: i you know i don't i i don't
4: know i suspect um <clears throat> that there probably was something but but not very much because he didn't get away with it Well, you, I, I, with I, you.
1: It might have been for his job. You know, maybe he was required to get a vaccine.
5: A uh, today at 10 o'clock, no, 9 o'clock, I had my uh, appointment for my COVID, my booster. Oh, you got and the got booster? Done. Yeah. And, and you called me about five minutes before I returned home. So I was speaking to you from the phone. But I want you to let you know that I'm fully vaccinated now, and I've got my... Uh, I've got my guide where I can go anywhere in the world uh, um, without uh, being harassed or in people. So how do you feel?
3: Stuff.
5: Got how any questions?
3: No. no? problem? No reaction? Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. Not, no, we Much better the problem that
5: gave it to me. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs>
5: I'm sorry, Bobby. That was fun. Oh, oh. That's, okay. that's okay. We can be kind no to
1: Republicans. We can be kind to Republicans.
5: Okay. That's thank right. you, Bobby. I appreciate you so much, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to you. So if you thought I was about a five <laughs> minutes ago, I apologize for that, because you're a wonderful, well-educated woman that I appreciate to share you. Well, thank
1: with. you so much, Henry. If we were left on the Stranded Island, just the two of us, I'm sure it would be interesting.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Theodore John Conrad was only 20 years old when he robbed the Society National Bank in Cleveland on July 11, 1969, according to the U.S. Marshals Service. Conrad worked as a teller at the bank, and on the day of the robbery, he stashed $215,000 or around $1.7 million in 2021 dollars, in a paper bag and simply walked out the door. Because the robbery happened on a Friday, the bank was not aware of anything amiss until the following Monday morning when they checked the vault and found the money gone, according to the marshals. Conrad, unsurprisingly, did not show up for work that Monday. He had... <laughs> He had a two-day head start on law enforcement and managed to avoid capture for 52 years. It, wow. wasn't, it wasn't until earlier this month that the U.S. Marshals based in Cleveland discovered that a man named Thomas Randall was in fact Conrad. Randall lived in Linfield, Massachusetts and had been living in a suburban neighborhood since the 1970s until he died of lung cancer in May at the age of 71. The marshals said they made the discovery after matching uh, paperwork that Conrad had filled out in the 1960s with documents that Randall had filled out later in life, including a 2014 filing for bankruptcy. Solving solving the case provided closure to Peter Elliott, a U.S. Marshal whose father, John Elliott, also worked on the investigation, according to a statement from the Marshal's Service. I hope my father is resting a little easier today knowing his investigation and his United States Marshal's Service brought closure to this decades-long mystery, Elliott said. Everything in real life doesn't always end like in the movies. What would be a good movie ending to this story?
3: I don't know. I was going to say, this sounds like a plot for a great cold case movie or TV special of some kind.
1: <laughs> a uh, very
3: <laughs> long TV series. That's true. That's true.
1: Yeah. Maybe he became the president of the Homeowners Association and, and they had to do a background check and they checked his fingerprints and his DNA and voila, there he was. Maybe that, yeah, yeah. Be what funny.
3: if
5: he got married and had kids? Uh, That would tell the story
4: a different way. I'd like to see it turn out that he had been roommates with D.B. Cooper. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe Jimmy Hoffa.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it makes it much more interesting, doesn't it?
4: (laughs) That's just just one of those stories. And you don't hear about those very often because the investigation just kind of dwindles and... You know, and just stops and, you know, it doesn't really get thought about or or remembered. But that wraps it up for uh, Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program today and today's edition of uh, of the uh, Tom Sumner Program Armchair Politics with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki. Paul, thank you so much, as
3: always. Always good to be here.
4: And Henry Hatter, thanks to you as well, Henry. Am I sitting at the table with all people who have been vaccinated? Otherwise, somebody has to leave the table. <laughs> That's
3: right.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, nope, I'm, I'm vaccinated and boosted and everything.
3: Yep, same here, we're all, we're all We're all safe.
4: Yeah.
1: We're all good. And if and if we're good, all wound up all on good. the deserted island. We wouldn't infect each other.
4: And, <laughs> yes. and thanks uh, again to uh, Bobby Clayton Walton for uh, joining us today.
1: Thank you so much, guys. I always enjoy it.
4: Well, good to talk to you again, Bobby. Thanks. Thank you, Bobby.
3: Thanks, Tom.
4: Thanks, everybody. That uh, wraps up today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. That's Smoking George Winters, tickling the Ivories, Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But I will be back tomorrow at this same time with another edition of the Tom Sumner Program, and I hope that you will be, too. In the meantime, stay safe, and uh, good night, everybody.